Hello there you and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me Luke Clancy and on the slate this time Jennifer Walsh preps for a flaming future in the latest Things Know Things. The spirit of Octavia Butler pervades a new exhibition at Visual Carlo and we find a painted form for TIAs. But we begin this time by discovering what happened when Rob McGlade put his poetry collection into the hands of David Sedaris. McGlade's life has been moving ever faster since the night recently when he went to a book signing and handed his not-all-that-slim volume of poetry, Vinegar, to the American humorist David Sedaris. Sedaris liked the work and made a point of saying the unflattering author photo. Pretty soon he'd put McGlade in front of his largest ever crowd, opening for Sedaris's Dublin date at the NCH before flying him to the UK for a similar outing. Rob McGlade took some time from his suddenly very crowded appointment book to talk to Culturefile about poetry, profanity, education, vinegar, and hitting it off with the funniest man on the planet. Okay, vinegar. They don't trust us with vinegar. They think we can't handle it. They think we only want vinegar in small amounts. Instead of a gaping hole, it squoze through the eye of a needle. Deperforate the bastard. The first thing I do when I get a new bottle is jam a knife in till I have unrestricted access. No more waiting, parching, salivating. No more shaking up and down on me chips as people gaze in horror how long I spend adding flavour. Yes, so my name is Rob McLeod and I recently wrote my first poetry book, a collection of about a about hundred poems called Vinegar. Go eat your own chips whatever way you want. We've had a rough day. I deserve this. Sure it was good enough for Christ, your saviour. When Christ wanted vinegar on the cross, did he have to suck it through a tiny hole? Through a chance meeting with David Sedaris, he invited me to open for him uh, in Dublin and Glasgow. And um, yeah, my first poetry performance ever was to a sold out national concert hall, <laughs> which is pretty mad. They couldn't get the vinegar out quick enough for Christ. They even had a vinegar hose back then. It's true. Look rough, you don't believe me. The vinegar companies outlawed them for religious reasons. That's why the likes of me and you have never seen them. And the way the chippers pour the vinegar for you. I stopped them now before I've even ordered me chips. Before I give you me money, I hope you have stocked up on vinegar. Vinegar was the first poem that kind of instigated the book. I hadn't planned on making a book of poetry. I've been writing poetry for like, since I was 12, so over 20 years, I'm 35 now. And I always love finding new poetry, but I'm always sort of disappointed with a lot of performance poetry and the angle that a lot of poets take in contemporary poetry is pick something big, pick a topic that's big and we'll start from like, you know, your nationality, say, or something like that. And it's all about the, the, the defense of something. So I wanted to start from something insignificant and to me and see where it went. And I started with vinegar and then vinegar led to, you know, I love vinegar in a chipper, for instance. And that idea just expanded into, well, vinegar. And then you bring Christ into it because Christ on the cross. And all of a sudden you, you realize you're writing about religion and chippers in one go. That poem literally came out exactly as it was on the first go, which like doesn't happen that often, you know. So 
lot of editing for a lot of the other poems. A foreigner. I want to know what love is, but I don't want you to show me. I didn't actually, I don't know how, but I never heard of David before. Don't ask, like, ridiculous, I know, because he's so successful and famous. Just one of those things. Somebody had read my book and said, you remind me of David Sedaris. And I told him that when I met him at the book signing. My partner like, convinced me, bring the book, you know, and tell him the story. And I'm like, yeah, 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 you know, I don't want to annoy this man. And um, he opened the first page of my book and just started laughing at the the art of photo, which is quite unflattering, as he said in his introduction to me in the National Concert Hall. It is strange that there, there are similarities and I haven't been influenced him in any way, so it's kind of funny finding the extraordinary in the ordinary, let's say. Observational, I suppose. You know, I mean, the, the book happened for me from a place of insignificance because it just opens much more uh, of the world than starting from you know, a massive topic and trying to work backwards. It, it doesn't really appeal to me, I have to say. I come from a place just off James Street called Mount Brown, and I went to school nearby. My first performance would have been, I actually moved to Sing Street in the second half of secondary school. I had like a talent show in Sing Street when I was about 15, 16 maybe. And I did like two original songs and uh, covered with a bass player and a drummer and covered uh, Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> that that was the sort of start of, oh, I like this, you know, this this buzz is good. But I think over the years, you know, you get, I was in a band called 15 Minutes and we did tours and stuff like that. And like the, the band was good and stuff, but the music industry to me was a bit sickening. I didn't really like it. And I moved more towards the art in, art is an industry as well, but the art industry side of things. The advantages of self-plumbing. It's very easy to flush a bucket. There's no difference with the short poems. It is just a one-liner when it's performed. On the page, something else exists because one-liners generally don't have a title. I do lots of these short poems as kind of palate cleansers in the book because you don't want too many long poems in a row. And... They seem weakish, and then I give them a title, and it's like, oh, the title actually adds something to it in a way that a stand-up uh, comedian doesn't really have a title for a one-line joke. David's manager actually said that it, it's very similar to stand-up, the show, my set itself. And, I mean, he's right, it is. Um, but it is also poetry. There is a few really dark poems in the book that are not funny <laughs> and no stand-up comedian would choose to use it. I used to tour Irish schools starting from 2015 with musical interpretations of, uh, of Shakespeare and uh, I'm really interested in stuff like that. Like I would love to do a, a school tour. I, I mean the expletives are obviously going to be difficult to, to manage. I'll have to rewrite a lot of poems but uh, when I would do the Shakespeare uh, in school, the musical Shakespeare stuff, there would be maybe one kid in every hundred, which is, sound, doesn't sound like much, because you go into a school, these kids don't want to even see it, you know. They're the tough crowd, you know. National Concert Hall was the opposite of that. But one person could walk away from that and have a different thought about what art is uh, and just know that it exists. You know, this exists. When I went to see Laurie Anderson's retrospective in Emmett 
when I was like 16. It literally changed how I thought as a person. And I don't know what person I would be now if I didn't see that. Proof of purchase. Sorry, would you like a receipt? Nah, it's grand. I believe that this happened. Rob McGlade there and his book of verse, Vinegar, is available from Amazon. And you can catch his show, Vinegar, at this year's Edinburgh Festival. Now, painter Gwen O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan's journey into painting has been a long, slow one, including returning to study at NCAD after raising a family. Since then, she's grown ever more dedicated to her work and everything it has to offer, including a way of understanding devastating illness, such as the transient ischemic attacks suffered by her late mother. She talked to Culture Files' Tara Scanlon about what her art takes and what it gives. My name is Gwen O'Sullivan. I am a painter. I work in various mediums, oils, acrylics, watercolours, inks and sometimes collage. I love portraiture and landscape and I've just started to do plein air this year. I grew up in Navan, one of 12 children. Uh, it was a busy house. Was, um, she had her own little knitting business so we all kind of learned to knit and sew. I also did crafting and quilting when I was young so it was always kind of artistic side was always there. We went to Black Rock and Dundalk every year for holidays and on wet rainy days I would spend hours drawing and I started painting when I was about 16. Uh, my sister Phil bought me a set of oils so um, that was my first felt professional. <laughs> <laughs> I did art for my leaving cert and I did well in it and I wanted to go to art college, but my parents thought I wouldn't ever get a job afterwards. So I applied to Navin Carpets to become a textile designer and they trained me. And I worked there for eight years, but I felt it was a bit restrictive. So I left to become a full-time painter. After I had my first child, I decided to go to NCAD night classes to do some life drawing. I continued with that for a few years and I started uh, showing with the local group and uh, went to art and craft fairs every Sunday during winter and, and summer. So Jude, my husband, was very supportive over the years between minding kids and um, he used to make me stands that I could put up and collapse easily for the fairs. I had some group and solo shows and I was also in a few galleries. How do you approach your work? Is there a specific process you follow or a technique you use when you're painting? Um, I tend to work in layers, laying down uh, thin washes of colour and putting in the darks and maybe the lights. You can work wet on wet with oils, but I tend to let it dry for a few days after I do the first laying down a colour and then I go back on with the next layer. So we work up over time and I tend to work in about three or four steps. The first is laying down the washes, the second would be building up shapes and colour and the third would be defining uh, details and adding highlights and texture to the foreground. I take a lot of photographs and there seems to be a thread that runs through them, whether it's an old crumbling building or wall or peeling paint. Uh, I seem to be drawn to decay. I also love distance in a painting a gap in the hedge or a gateway with the sun coming through it onto a dark road. 
I like to know what's around the corner or through the gap or down the lane, what's in the next field. I seem to be drawn to the distance. I've always been interested in a sense of place and maybe that comes from being in a large family. The connections to the past through photographs, antiques, old houses. I have a fascination with the things we leave behind and what it says about us. I wanted to make some work that would reflect that. So when my son bought an old house, I went round when we were clearing it out, I ended up collecting anything I could find in it. The bits that created the fabric of the house, like mortar, nails, wood, glass, stone and peeling paint, even bits of lino. I had to do some research on how I could contain these pieces within the work. So I started layering pieces of uh, coloured tissue down with glue on the canvas. And then within those layers, I put in the, the pieces that I had found into those layers. The colour of the tissue was to represent the colours that were in the peeling paint. Then I started to sand back into the layers so it was kind of torn, like it looked like peeling paint. I finished the piece uh, by drawing the shape of the room on top of the layering. We think of old houses as being drab and dreary, but they were colourful and vibrant in their time. You know, it's surprising how much colour they actually had, even though they were very small windows and very dark in their homes, but the colours they used were so vibrant, like reds and greens and, you know, beautiful turquoises. Tell me about a work you've done that's the most significant to you. Right, well, I went back to NCAD in my 50s to do a part-time diploma in art and design. While I was at NCAD, I did a project on my mother, which uh, she had been diagnosed with TIAs. In doing the research on TIAs, I was amazed at some of the images that came up on the subject. So I started working in acrylic and inks and reproducing some of the images. I also started doing portraits of my mother. My final piece consisted of five portraits of my mother, each one she was slowly turning away. And that was to represent the... Um, the loss that you lose every time yeah. they have a TIA, you lose a little tiny piece of them. So that um, in the final one, um, she's barely there. Yeah. So my mother died two years ago uh, during COVID. Sorry to hear that. And we weren't allowed uh, to be with her or even visit her, um, not even window visits. Um, it was a very difficult time for all of my family. At the moment, I'm concentrating on doing plein air painting. I've just done Dublin plein air. Oh, fabulous. Um, and I'm signed up for uh, Louth oh, and wow. Wexford plein air. So hopefully something good will come out of that. Um, I will see where that takes me. Absolutely. Hope um, you have a nice weather for it. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> my husband Jude and myself have been renovating an old 1930s house with a little help from all our friends here <laughs> and there. Uh, for the last three years so we're nearly done and it will become my studio so we're hoping to have it finished for culture night this year
Painter Gwen O'Sullivan there and the reporter was Tara Scanlon. If you'd like to see some of those images mentioned, follow at CultureFilePod on Twitter. The American science fiction writer Octavia Butler is having what you might call a moment in the Irish galleries this summer. A ceiling-height portrait of her hangs in Immer at the Otterleth Group's show there, to which her writing has lent its title, Xenogenesis. Simultaneously at Visual Carlo, another show, Speech Sounds, also takes its title from Butler's writing. Niamh Daly spoke to the show's curator, Irlef Nivjörish, about the technology of speech and Octavia Butler's Tales of Post-Pandemic L.A., written in the 1980s. We are technological as, as a people. You know, the language, and before the written language, or before any form of language, was a technology just as a stone tool, or farming, or making beer. But all these things have informed who we are. I'm Eileen Yarish, and I am a writer and curator based in between Dublin and Ireland. I was the curator in residence at Visual Carlo for 2021, and then the work I produced out of that um, culminated in this exhibition, Speech Sounds. So Speech Sounds is a large multidisciplinary exhibition that includes sculpture, video, sound, and is kind of contained in this large wooden frame we've constructed. And that was to create different eye lines, but also intimate moments to engage with these works. Visual Carlo is quite a monumental exhibition space, which was slightly intimidating and I wanted it to be a more intimate, softer, slower experience and I wanted each artwork to be given that, that space and that room to be sat with. So the first work you'll come across is Jonah King and Sue Hang, Honey Fungus, which is at first sight quite a large projection with these silk screens and that is a virtual reality piece. Once you put that on, you fall into this kind of microbial or mycelial network, uh, the network of mushrooms and fungus, and it takes you on a poetic journey through the erotic and the ecological. I don't know how, but you're dreaming me. We play you with your yukons on my small fish as you lay between my... As you turn around the structure, you come across Jenny Brady's receiver, which tracks the history of deaf languages, of sign language, particularly looking at the Milan Conference, um, which advised the ban on teaching sign language in deaf schools. And as you progress, there's a number of works that all deal with the way that illness and disability communicate. Beach Sounds came out of a, a long-running interest in science fiction, be that popular culture science fiction or the work of Octavia Butler. And this interest in science fiction with communication language but specifically looking at communication language through the prism of disability or body modification. So my practice deals broadly with cripness or the critical engagement with disability, illness and disease. Um, and when you, when you kind of, that first year of lockdown where we all had this time to revisit all these childhood films and sci-fi and read all these books, it became quite clear that there was this obsession or interest in disability. So I wanted to create the opportunity for artists to respond in a broad sense to the languages and the, the ways we can communicate as bodies, be that disabled bodies, be that between ourselves and those we love, those we've lost, ancestors, thinking of the connection between the human and the non-human or, or, or nature, and thinking of a broader, more speculative understanding and imagining of what communication language could be. How did you come up with the name Speech Sounds? 
So Speech Sounds comes from a short story by Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler is considered a master of sci-fi writing. She was based in the West Coast of the United States. So the Speech Sounds is a short story that follows the story of Rai, who's lost her parents in a post-pandemic LA. This pandemic has left the entire population without the ability to speak, write or communicate in any way, which has kind of resulted in societal collapse and violence and kind of is a typical post-apocalyptic theme. And I found it quite interesting because Octavia Butler has this very critical imagining and world building. So she, she engages critically with the future as a way to critically examine the, the current. And it gives us the political and imaginary tools to engage with that. But in this, I, I, it felt there was a shortcoming that, you know, there was this collapse in forms of communication and there was no thinking critically about disability in that moment and thinking about possibly the idea of sign and the languages we already have. Humans communicate in many ways, be that nonverbal, uh, be that through sign, be that through body language, be that through the subtle and noble gestures and hormones and pheromones that we communicate with each other. making a film with Emma Wolf Hall to be shown in Union Gallery in November as part of Ulysses 2.2, which is a huge body of work by Landmark, Anu Productions and the Museum of Literature Ireland, commissioning 18 artists to make work in response to the centenary of James Joyce's Ulysses. We have rightly been given Circe, episode 15, which deals with the hallucinatory the gender swapping, the kink, uh, the film will be taking a nighttime party trip through Dublin, addressing the kind of lack of nightlife in Dublin at the moment, but also addressing the the troubling language used in, in Joyce that I haven't seen addressed, be that racist, ableist, and what needs to be done to undo that kind of literary harm. So colonialism plays into your broader practice. So have you adopted any focused decolonization actions to shift your perception? I don't have a, a specific decolonial practice, but my work does deal with the malleability of bodies and thinking of undermining and picking apart the colonial categorization of bodies, which is the violence that allows colonialism to have done what it has done and what my work tries to address is not to think of someone as trans or cis or man or woman or disabled or, or abled but that at some way all our bodies exist in this maelstrom this mess of what it is to be a human and these categorization which have been taken on by identity politics thinking about people claiming these identities as sacred and as immovable fixed completely biologically is counterintuitive to the decolonial work we must do in removing the inner characterizations and these kind of outer societal structures that they inform so in some way my work comes from this frustration and this resistance to this incessant characterization that has somehow gotten into these circles who you would think would be critical of them and kind of undoing identity politics whilst undoing the categorization of colonialism.
Ilat Nivyarish there, and the reporter was Nir Daly. Speech sounds curated by Ilat Nivyarish is at Visual Carlo until August 21st. And finally on the Culture File Weekly, let's take the temperature of London in the end times. Having survived England's recent heat explosion, Jennifer Walsh sends us a postcard from the urban climate frontline in her latest Things Know Things. Well, we survived the heat wave, thankfully. In the lead-up, I spent a lot of time reading blogs by preppers and dads in America, so we taped emergency blankets to the outside of our windows, made about a week's worth of salads and moved our laptops into the one north-facing room in the flat. We spent the heatwave there, periodically wetting down the cat and draping frozen towels over our shoulders. On the afternoon, the temperature hit 40 in London for the first time in recorded history. I put on the strongest sunblock I had and ventured outside for a few minutes. The heat was overwhelming in a way that I can only describe as sensuous. It seemed like the air had changed state. It had stopped being air and instead felt like being in a very hot bath. It was clear that a lot of people would be in serious trouble if the electricity stopped working. We had already seen an ambulance pull up outside the house of an elderly person who lives on our street. Later that day, we would smell smoke on the air and go out to check none of the compost heaps in the allotments behind us had spontaneously combusted. I have experienced 40-degree heat before, I survived several summers in New York, but to witness it in London, a city completely unequipped to deal with temperatures like this, felt very different. The heat felt more present, more threatening, because there was nowhere to go to escape it. It felt like the London I was in, in that heat, wasn't London anymore. It seemed like a video game set in a desert with Victorian houses in it. When these type of temperatures become more common, as they surely will, the whole city will have to change utterly to be livable, to be whatever London is when it involves 40 degree plus temperatures. This feeling of a city changing in some fundamental way, a city being part virtual as it changes, extends to far more than the weather right now. One of the biggest tourist attractions at the moment is ABBA Voyage, a show which involves huge holographic projections of ABBA performing. In the West End, you can go see The War of the Worlds, which involves a hologram of Liam Neeson. And standing outside my flat in the heat, I thought, bizarrely enough, about the Platinum Jubilee which happened here two months ago. I thought about the hologram of 1953-era Queen Elizabeth, a hologram which rode the streets in a gilded carriage waving to passers-by. At the time, I dismissed the hologram as backwards-looking kitsch, but maybe it was, in fact, eerily prescient. I thought forward to future London, to what the climate crisis will force London to become. A city where, perhaps, the only safe way for a monarch 
to travel the empty, blistering streets of summer will be as a hologram. The latest things know things from Jennifer Walsh there, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll have a few favourite episodes of the Culture File Weekly over August and be back with you and the fresh crop in September. But don't forget, there are always plenty of episodes of Culture File and the Culture File Weekly to keep you going. They're all available from the Culture File page on the Lyrics site. Bye now. <laughs>